The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know you put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Those are verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 9, which along with Psalm 15 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, July the 11th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, looking at um, the book of Joshua, chapter 2, the first 14 verses is our Old Testament reading, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, the first 13 verses there, and then in Romans, chapter 11, the first 12 verses. <clears throat> So in this Joshua passage, Joshua is going to do the same thing Moses did, except he's going to do it with, with a more tightly defined role for the spies that he's going to send out here. Moses just sent a man to spy out the land. Joshua is going to be a little more careful about that. He says he sent two men secretly from Shittim, which is where they were, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. That's going to be the first task, is going to be conquer the city of Jericho. And so, so Joshua wants these men to go and spy out the land, particularly Jericho, because he wants to know what the opposition looks like. What, is the, what does the field look like that he's going to have to operate in? So they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. That's a little bit odd, let's say. Um, when, when I first came to Asheville, that they, they sent me up here. There was a, uh, some people who were gathered here, and I was sent to kind of spy out the land and see if it was a, a good place to plant a church. And so I came and, and then came back and met with the other clergy and sat down and talked, and, and they said, so tell us about Asheville. I said, so I went and spent a couple of days with a prostitute. Everybody looked at me like I was insane, and I said, well, I, I had just been reading in Joshua and assumed that was what y'all wanted me to do. It, it's odd, but, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense because a, pro, a place where a prostitute was would be a place where men from other places would come and be uh, at that house. So that's why they would have done that. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So he, he sends men in to go and see what in the world is going on. And, and if you've got them, then we need you to send them out. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So these men have gone now looking for these Israelite spies who have come into the land, and, and Rahab has lied to the, to the men that were sent by the king of Jericho in order to put them on a wild goose chase. And so the, the men are hidden under stalks of flax, and then the pursuers go out into the Jordan. Before the men lay down, the men being the spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. Interesting. What an interesting thing. Now, we know the same thing happened with, with um, Balak, the king of, of um, Moab that the fear of, of the Lord had fallen upon them because there were so many of them. And so here they could have heard this and said, well, you know, it's the same thing we just encountered in Moab. Um, 
and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Well, that's interesting language. It's language that relates back to the spies that Moses sent out, but it was the other way around. Our hearts melted within us. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As I said, those are the last of the giant kings who were there. And so they've heard, the people of Jericho heard what happened so long ago, 40 years before at the Red Sea. And then it's been quite a while since they defeated Sihon and and Og, the, the Amorite kings. And so they've heard this far, far in advance. And as soon as we heard it, 40 years ago, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So the people in Jericho actually believed more about God and God's ability to to get them the land than the people of Israel believed. They were in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe this. The people of Jericho have been waiting in fear for 40 years for these people to show up. What an awful moment it must have been to hear this. There, there, there's a gladness that's, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk, but then there's the other side of it is it would have been a cakewalk 40 years ago too. <clears throat> so now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. I mean, as I said, it must have been a a horrible moment, while at the same time being, oh, thank goodness, because they've dreaded this moment. They've dreaded this moment for 40 years. They were not willing to do it, and so they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, and, and the people were pretty much prepared to surrender to them, as is 40 years before, because of what they had heard. And so instead, now... They, they're being asked to make a promise, a promise to Rahab and her family not to destroy them when they come and destroy Jericho. She is absolutely convinced that's what's going to happen. No question, no doubt in her mind, obviously. It, it's an amazing turn of events, and one certainly that, that Joshua would have been gladdened to hear, but at the same time, he had to spend 40 years in the wilderness because the, the other spies came back with a bad report of the land. In the gospel today, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. What's it going to be like? He's speaking to his disciples. He is out in the, at the Mount of Olives here. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. So they didn't take any spare with them. They only had the oil that was in the lamps. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. The delay would have been he has to finish the room that he's building on his father's house and get it to a workmanlike standard that that his father has to approve before he can bring his bride there. And so the wedding is delayed based on the work being finished. And so he's probably got a punch list thing going on, and now it's it's late, and so they've fallen asleep. But at midnight, there was a cry. <clears throat> Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then those all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said, in other words, they turned up the wicks. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Again, it's midnight when all this happens. And so they're they're saying, no, 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 we can't give you our oil, because if we give you some of ours, then there won't be enough for, for either of us. 
and we'll all be stuck out here. It's it, your bad. <laughs> it's your bad, not ours. So it, it's on you to go and get this to happen. And so while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is constantly trying to get his disciples to do one basic thing. And his disciples, when I say that, I mean us. I mean all of us. Not just those who were there that day, but all of us. We're constantly being encouraged in the parables Jesus tells to do one basic thing. Be prepared is the Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. Be prepared all the time. Never let your guard down. Constantly be moving in the direction of being prepared. And how do you prepare, right? I mean, you prepare by prayer. You prepare by by reading the Word of God. You prepare by worship. You prepare by all kinds of things. But it, it, it's keep your focus is probably the best thing. Know what it takes to get in, and then make sure that's always your supply. Your supply always needs to be faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's what needs to always be happening. And so we can't let down our guard. We have to always be prepared for his coming again because we don't know when, that's going to be hap- when that happens. So what are you going to be doing when it happens? It, it's, a gar- it's a guard against bad conduct. That, it's, it's always be prepared for the coming of Christ it, it, as though— you know, if you're at work, let's say, and your boss has gone to lunch and, and comes back a little bit early, what are you doing? If you're a kid, you know, remember, you know, hey, mom and dad are gone for a little while. If they come back a little bit early, what are they going to catch us doing? And, and that's exactly what we see here with the Jesus tells this parable for is to say, be prepared at any given time for me to come back. In other words, guard your conduct. Live a life worthy of receiving the grace that's on offer. Don't take grace for granted. You know, you've received grace. Now live into what you have received. Be willing to give up your life and and those pleasures that might have been something that you wanted before and and be willing to live a life now that, that is worthy of his coming again. Be prepared for his coming again. It's just as simple as that. There's really not much in that. Just as here, Rahab wanted to be prepared, right? She wanted to be prepared for the people of Israel to come and overthrow Jericho, which she believed with all her heart was going to happen. And so what does she do? Well, she's her preparation is to say, give me a sure sign that you will be merciful and that you'll be faithful as I've been faithful to you when I lied to the king of Jericho's men and didn't turn you over to them. And so that being prepared is always being walking with the Lord and in the Lord. Paul, when he speaks here in, to the Romans, he, you know, he, he's laid out the case that everybody needs a Savior and that the only one who fits the bill is Jesus. And so now what he's trying to say is, is that he's trying to square the circle around how do the Gentiles get in and what does that mean for the people of Israel? And he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. If he had rejected his people, I wouldn't be here telling you this message. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's laying the groundwork here for saying not all of Israel is Israel, which he's already said. Because when he he laid out the case before, he said all Israel. However, all means the children of the promise. It means the children that that were born to Abraham and Sarah, not to Abraham and Hagar. He's drawing distinctions. They don't get in. 
There's no automatic end here. It's those children, the one who were the elect. He didn't elect all the children of Abraham, only those that were birthed by Sarah. But then even then, he goes on to say that even then, when Isaac comes next, the, the son of Abraham and Sarah, he comes and then he has a child or he has twins and his his wife, Rebecca, got a word from the Lord that says that the younger will rule over the older. So Jacob, not Esau. So he says there's always been a pattern here that it doesn't include all the children because if it did, then Esau would have been the head guy or at least in the covenant, but he's not. And so God's always drawn distinctions even among those people right from the beginning all the way from Abraham forward. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. I'm the only one left who will stand up for you. I don't see anybody else, and now they're coming after me. Well, they really weren't. It was only Jezebel, but that's a minor point. But what is God's reply to Elijah? Quote, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's more than you know, but it's not all of Israel. It's only those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the ones that God knows that nobody else knows, that Elijah doesn't know. He really does believe that he's on his own. And so God says, no, there's more than that. There is a remnant. And so that's what Paul says. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's part of that remnant. So were the thousands who came to to belief and faith on the day of Pentecost. So were those who were added to that number daily. All those would have been Jewish people, or at least proselytes. But So they're adding all these people. So, so the church begins in Judaism, and then it begins to go to all the world through the work of Paul primarily. So Paul says the Jews haven't been excluded. He said there's a remnant. He said, but, there's, but it's always been that way. It's never been everybody, he says. It's always been a remnant. There's always been some. So God's faithful to his covenant promise. He said, but if it's by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So it can't be both, is what Paul's argument is. It can't be both works and grace. You've got to get in by grace, one way or another. It's who God foreknew, chosen by grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. It's like those in the wilderness, you know, the ones that were there for 40 years because they didn't believe God would take them into the land and give them the land. They were afraid of the inhabitants of the land. They were more afraid of them than they trusted in the Lord. And so they died in the wilderness. And so that's exactly what Paul's saying here. That's his argument here. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that wouldn't hear down to this very day. This has always been the case. It's, it's the case in the church, too. I mean, all who go to church are not going to be saved. That's the bottom line. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they can't see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, by no means. Rather, though their tres- through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Paul says there's a point and a purpose for all this. 
is still God's desire to bring in Israel. And we know from Revelation 7, we know that, it, that there's 144,000. That's not a real number. It's a, it's a much, uh, it's just a large number. It's a 12-12. So you get this perfection in there. And so you get that. And, and so there's a, a large number that will come in over the course of a long period of time. But but what he says is, is that, that the point of bringing in the Gentiles at the moment is, is to make Israel jealous of this. And you can see it. There are some rabbis that I listen to who, who will rant against Christianity and say that it's a false religion and all that. But others are way more benign in their attitude towards Christianity. And, and I think it's partly a reaction against, you know, Christian uh, triumphalism against Jewish people and, and the persecution that's come against Jewish people over the years from the church because we've misunderstood so many things. We blame the Jews for the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, had there not been a crucifixion, then there wouldn't be life for us Gentiles. No way for us to get into the covenant. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Is God hasn't rejected Israel. He said it's always been the case that all Israel wasn't saved. If that were the case, then then every descendant of Abraham would have gotten in, starting with Ishmael. But, it, but it's not. The covenant is with Isaac. And then after Isaac, Isaac's sons, God distinguishes between two of his sons and chooses one over the other. It's always been this way, Paul says. There's never been a time when everybody got in just by virtue of being born. That's not the way it's ever worked. That's a huge change for Paul. He says, now, if their trespasses mean rich riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul's waiting not for the full inclusion of the Gentiles, but for the full inclusion of his own people, the Jews. Now, he, he has to turn away from preaching to the Jews. He never doesn't, but he, he, he focuses his attention in his ministry mostly on Gentiles, because that's who God gave him to preach to, and the, the, the Jewish people typically rejected him wherever he was because he was preaching a message that was anathema to the leadership in the same way that Jesus preached a message that was anathema to the leadership. So Paul's saying, just be ready, be prepared. Because whatever applies to the Jews as far as the elect, the chosen versus, well, everybody else, if, if, it, if it means that for the Jews, then it certainly means that for the Gentiles. And so Paul, by way of giving this argument, is also making an argument for Gentiles that be careful, be prepared. Don't take anything for granted. Constantly live in a state of preparation.